So, Jay, are the Shi'ar birds or mammals? Nope. Huh. Okay, well, well, let's break this down. They have feathers. Okay, they can crossbreed with humans, as well as several other galactic races. They bear live young, except when they lay eggs. All of the above, of which would point to some kind of hybrid, if it weren't for the fact that they're also cold-blooded. What?! I'm Jay Edidin. And I'm Miles Stokes. And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to episode 379 of Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, the outs, and the retcons of comics' greatest superhero soap opera. And sometimes one of comics' greatest superhero space operas. Oh yeah. Yeah, we are going to space. In this era so defined by the ending of Onslaught and the beginning of Operation Zero Tolerance and anti-mutant hysteria and robots from the future and that sort of thing, sometimes you just need a space story. And Uncanny X-Men in 1997 totally obliges. Absolutely. I mean, one of the things I really like about the X-Men space stories is they tend to be high-stakes intense adventures that are at least somewhat separated continuity-wise from the big overarching stuff. I mean, obviously there are exceptions like the Phoenix Saga, but for the most part, what happens in space stays in space. I mean, technically everything's in space, so everything stays in space and happens in space. That is true. So before we get to what happens and then stays in space, let's do a little bit of background. Let's talk about what happened previously on X-Men. Okay, so as we all know by now, the X-Men are a group of heroic mutants sworn to protect a world that hates and fears them, a living metaphor, a found family, and also they regularly have to deal with a bunch of bullshit in space. So here's space bullshit item number one, the Shi'ar Empire, a vast imperium, kind of like if the Roman Empire was a bunch of bird people in space, and jerks, still. So the X-Men have had a lot of dealings with the Shi'ar Empire as both friends and foes, and especially with their current empress, Lilandra, who is the ex-girlfriend of Professor Xavier, and Deathbird, Lilandra's awesomely named sister, who's spent about the same amount of time working for Lilandra and attempting to overthrow her. Space bullshit item number two is the Phalanx, a group of shape-shifting techno-organic aliens whose goal is to assimilate all life into their collective race. They're a little like the Borg from Star Trek. Yeah, if they preferred yellow to black. The X-Men defeated a group of Phalanx once before on Earth in the Phalanx Covenant story, but we've always known that many more were out there in space, you know, preparing to assimilate everyone. Space. That's where I keep my stuff. As do the Shi'ar, which leads us to Uncanny X-Men number 341, When Strikes a Gladiator. This issue is written by Scott Lobdell, penciled by Joe Matarera, inked by Tim Townsend, colored by Steve Bucciolato and Team Buse, and lettered, you guessed it, by Richard Starkings and Comicraft. And a lot in this issue is very familiar. It begins under the gigantic Christmas tree above the ice skating rink on Fifth Avenue's Rockefeller Center in New York City. So just like the Phoenix Saga. Exactly, just like Uncanny X-Men number 98, or I guess at the time, just X-Men number 98. Man, I have been trying to find someone to go ice skating there with for 
years. Well, forever since I moved to New York, and no one has so far. And I really want to. It's like the one, the one tourist thing I want to do, and it's just because of the X Men. Dude, uh, also just because of the X-Men, if I am ever in New York in the winter, I will totally repeatedly fall on my ass while wearing ice skates with you on that rink. All right, it's a deal. Okay, awesome. Now I just need to get to New York in the winter at some point. That ice rink also always makes me think of the old Squaresoft video game Parasite Eve from the 90s, because it has a famous scene that opens there. It's also set around Christmas with that big tree above the rink. Ha, yeah. But yeah, there are a bunch of references to X-Men 98 here. Uh, this issue opens with Beast telling the X-Men, in way too many words, of course, that he thinks it's going to be a white Christmas, which is also the dialogue that opens X-Men number 98. And there are little things as well, like the heroes pass by an incognito Punisher here at one point, and in the original issue on the first page, we see Nick Fury and the Contessa hanging out in their civvies. Uh, in X-Men 98, Stanley and Jack Kirby show up, complaining about Scott and Jean's public display of affection, and here we see Bob Harris as a harried editor hurrying home for Christmas. So this issue is really a love letter to that one, and it makes sense, because that was the issue that first launched the X-Men into space. Not Shi'ar space, mind you, just to deal with some Sentinels and to lead into the Phoenix Saga. But here we have a story setting up another theoretically very important trip into space the same way. It'll end up not being nearly as important, but it's still a cool trick. Was that a Trask? No, that was Stephen Lang, right? Yeah, yeah, Stephen Lang, who I think wishes his last name was Trask, but no, it's not. Right, and he had built a bunch of, of Sentinels who were duplicates of the original X-Men for the all-new different X-Men to fight. I think that was really just so we could get that cliffhanger last page in one issue and cover of the next from the old X-Men fighting the new X-Men. I mean, I think a lot of things happened for those covers. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. But this issue, I appreciate, isn't just an homage to number 98. It's also got its own stuff going on, some of which I really like. Like, I'll go ahead and say this now— I like this story overall, but this issue I straight up love. Okay. So tell me more about what you like what you like here. What I like is the character dynamic, mixed with a hearty amount of X-Men angst. We have Beast here, uh, using his image inducer so he just looks like a normal human, not blue, inviting everyone on the team who's with him to join himself and the tempting Trish Tilby, as he calls her, for dinner. She's really amused, uh, or I guess maybe bemused by that name. Trish, of course, is a journalist in the Marvel Universe who's been hanging out with Beast and sometimes romantically involved with him, sometimes arguing with him. Usually she's right. Uh, since the early days of X-Factor. That being the OG X-Factor when they were pretending to be mutant hunters. Exactly. Alas, everyone has their own reasons to decline, which which sucks. I mean, Beast is reaching out. This is clearly a bid for affection. Like, have you people not read any Gottman books? Come on. Yeah, but he's asking people to go out with him for dinner impromptu on an evening when they're likely to already have plans. I mean, there's reaching out and there's also setting yourself up for refusal. I suppose that's true, and to his credit, he's very good-natured about the whole thing. Gambit is less good-natured, though. He just sort of mopes off on his own when he sees Rogue and Joseph hanging out. Of course, Gambit is very jealous because Joseph is a de-aged Magneto, sort of, not really, but as far as we know. Allegedly. And, 
Yeah, and Magneto and Rogue had romantic history. Gambit thinks he's the odd man out, the third wheel. And I really love as he does this, the way Joe Matarera draws Rogue with her fists just clenched by her side and this black scribble over her head like she's an angry cartoon character. Joe Matarera's Rogue looks significantly younger than a lot of the other X-Men in ways that I really appreciate because she's supposed to be and everyone kind of forgets that. Everyone totally forgets that. Yeah, Rogue was, like, a teenager when she joined the X-Men. Like, I think Rogue is maybe around Colossus's age, another character everybody forgets is supposed to be younger than most of the X-Men. Roughly, yeah. And he he manages, he differentiates her, and, and his, his wide-eyed Sam Guthrie is really delightful, too. Yeah. Yeah, Joe Matarera is just a treasure on X-Men. I so enjoy his art. Like, I think we've gotten used to him being the penciler on this book, so we don't talk about him as much, but it's always a pleasure to see him work. He's very expressive with characters when they're just hanging out and talking about things. He draws a great dynamic fight scene. Like, you know, yeah, he's his style's very manga-inflected, but I'm fine with that. Yeah, there's there's nothing wrong with that, and he does, I think, a very good good job of balancing those influences with the expectations of what you'd see in superhero comics, in American superhero comics, and what you get is a hybrid style that I think really brings a lot of the strengths of each. Oh yeah, very much so. So that's Gambit. Rogue and Joseph have their own plans, as we'll find out. Bishop is just honest, basically saying, yeah, I'm feeling pretty messed up. I don't really want to hang out with anybody. Do I need an excuse? And Beast's like, nah, dude, you're good. But let's talk a little bit about how Bishop is doing here, because we're going to see him go through some stuff internally in this arc. Bishop is having a rough time after Onslaught, and for good reason. Um, He came to the the present, his past, knowing that there was going to be an ex-traitor who destroyed the X-Men. And um, he expected that it was Gambit, with, with you know, reasonable cause. And it turned out to be not any outsider and not any member of the team, but his all-time hero and the X-Men's founder, Charles Xavier, as Onslaught. And, you know, to be fair, Bishop was instrumental in stopping Onslaught from wiping out the X-Men, but, you know, it's kind of like after Cable defeats Apocalypse, there's that whole, what do I do next question. And with Cable, at least, he has a complicated enough backstory and identity that he had some some options there, but Bishop really doesn't. Bishop is an extremely straightforward person— And now his reason for being in this timeline at all is pretty much gone, and all he's left with is trying to figure out what his own desires and priorities are, and that's something he's never really had to think about. Also, between his future, the present, and the Age of Apocalypse, he's carrying around three timelines worth of PTSD. Ah, jeez. You know, I hear really good things about uh, modern psychedelic therapy for treating PTSD, so Bishop, if you want to time travel again into 2022, then A, I'm sorry about a lot of what's going on, but B, you could try that. As for Joseph and Rogue, well, Joseph takes Rogue for a flying horse-drawn carriage ride. There is this beautiful image of the carriage and its horse and its driver floating serenely over this snowy, hazy city below. It actually reminds me a lot of the part in the Peter Pan ride at Disney World or Disneyland, where your little car thing is going over the tiny little city below with its twinkling lights that's actually just like four feet below. Uh, it's it's really cool and magical, and um, also, oh man, that, that driver and that horse, they're experiencing some stuff, because yeah, Joseph is like magnetically levitating them all above the city. I feel so bad for that horse. 
I know. Although the the driver guy is like super chill. He's just this old mustachioed looking man. And he's like, no, no, no. I've thought a lot about it. And mutants are a-okay with me. And a lot of them are heroes. And it's just an honor to be here with you. He wants to just enjoy his miracle. Although he says, just as soon as I can get my fingernails out of my kneecaps, that is. It is a really charming scene, though. And they ask the driver to drop them off on top of the World Trade Center. Although it occurs to me, Joseph has to be the one steering, right? I mean, that horse isn't, like, galloping through the air. It's just sort of being hovered. How the hell is the driver supposed to get down after dropping them off? I mean, I know a real easy way, but that wouldn't be ideal. Again, I have concerns. Well, anyway... The evening continues to be very romantic, and I continue to have mixed feelings, because while I think that Magneto and Rogue were an interesting couple, I'm totally a Rogue and Gambit shipper. And Joseph magnetically summons a giant mechanical donut out of nowhere! You know, all the best dates I've been on have involved giant mechanical donuts. I mean, I was kind of hoping he was just going to propose and just got the size of the ring, like, really, really wrong. Or he was going to be like, I borrowed a Gravitron from, like, the local fair. Want to go for a spin? Mmm. Nothing more romantic than flying to the top of the World Trade Center on a magnetically carried horse and then puking your guts out with your date. Look, he's, he's new to this, okay? He doesn't know what the fuck he's doing. No. But what he apparently does know is mechanical stuff, because this is the core of the Xenox Chamber. Jay, would you like to recap just what the hell the Xenox Chamber is? No. Okay, well, then I will. So, when Professor Xavier faked his own death, like, one of the earlier times, back toward the end of the Silver Age, that was because he was working on some mechanical nonsense that would allow him to focus his telepathy to fight off the alien Xenox who were going to invade. So, basically, the Xenox chamber was a psionic focusing and psionic blocking chamber so that nobody could, like, detect him in there and he'd be protected. So apparently what happened here is that Joseph has modified that machinery to be used as a tool to block his own mind so that Rogue is able to physically touch him. Because, of course, normally when she touches anybody skin to skin, she does something between stealing their powers and knocking them out and killing them. And sure enough, it works. Rogue is skeptical. Joseph, please... I've been down this road before, and it only leads to disappointment. Do you trust me? Yes. And he kisses her on the forehead, and it's it's very cute. Yeah, it's like gentle, and it's affectionate. It's not particularly sexual. It's actually just a nice, kind moment. Like, yes, there's some romantic connection between these characters. There's some chemistry, obviously, but that's not what this is about. This is just an act of generosity and compassion. It's definitely better than that time that he flew into her window while she was sleeping to yell about how excited he was about making a machine to do this. So I have a lot of questions about the logistics of this, and I recognize that they're questions about whether the imaginary machine does the imaginary thing with the imaginary superpowers, and yet they linger. Yeah, fair enough. Like, okay, so this apparently blocks his mind from being absorbed by Rogue when they touch. I mean, okay, she does absorb people's minds, yes, but she also just absorbs their powers, which are not really mental necessarily. Right, it would have to be a general power dampening chamber. But obviously it doesn't impact his powers because he can keep it, you know, floating in the air above the World Trade Center, which... There's no, like, response to. You would expect there to be a lot of police cars gathered at the foot of that by the time they were done. 
I don't know. This is the Marvel Universe. I feel like unless half the city is blowing up, people just glance over and shrug. But it does make me wonder. I mean, you know, Joseph is clear that this is for her, not him. So is he just going to be, like, following her around, hovering this giant building-sized donut over her head whenever she's on her Tinder dates or something? Yes. That's a pretty good wingman, then. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's going to be kind of awkward sometimes, because he's going to have he's going to have so many questions about, about humanity and, and all that stuff. It's, it's going to get weird, and obviously some of those dates are, are going to question having a guy who looks just like Magneto floating around with a giant metal donut as they as, as, as makeouts happen. But, you know, it's, it's, it's one way to have safer sex. I'm just imagining Shinobi Shaw hiding in the corner with a notebook, writing frantically as all this is happening. Oh, because it would say it would it would it would prevent him from being detected. Exactly. Problem solved. Anyway, as that's going on, Cannonball is the one member of the X Men here who's totally up for hanging out with Beast and Trish. You know, right after he picks up some gifts for his nine siblings. So he heads to FAO Schwartz, um, and you you remarked that that. You'd only seen this in movies, and likewise, I don't think I've ever actually been in it, although I've definitely walked past it. Yeah, I mean, in the movies I'd seen that take place in New York, like, F.A.O. Schwartz was this magical fairyland. Like, not only is it an enormous toy store, I mean, from what I could tell, but also a lot of the toys there are, like, the old-school kinds. And that kind of works because, you know, Cannonball comes from a very rural area, so I'm just imagining the Christmas list, which is one of those very long scrolls that you see in pictures of Santa Claus, which I appreciate. I just imagine that being full of, like, you know, stick with hoop, wooden horse, some mud. You think they sell mud at F.A.O. Schwartz? Yeah, but it's, like, really expensive. Yeah, that would make sense. Made in China, too. So suddenly, the the um, chaos of, of a million parents' Christmas shopping is broken up by a big pink teleport sphere. That's right, it's Gladiator of the Shi'ar Imperial Guard, who sees Sam and promptly grabs him by the head. Yeah, while Sam's trying to rescue some shopkeeper from the impact of Gladiator's arrival. And I love the way this happens. Like, there's this big, overwhelming, crowded, full-page panel with just, like, little bits of unattributed dialogue of what all the parents and children are all yelling at each other. And then, kaboom, giant pink energy sphere, and all of that is just slammed out of the way. It really gets across, like, the interruption of this chaos with different chaos. Sorry. Now, we talked about the Shi'ar themselves. What's the deal with the Imperial Guard in general, and Gladiator in particular? Well, the Imperial Guard are sort of their specialized uh, troops, like the ones that kind of lead any sort of defense, especially of the royals themselves. What they also are is a big reference to the Legion of Superheroes from DC Comics. Like, there are a lot of direct parallels. I'm not a big DC scholar by any means, but from what I understand, that's the case. Gladiator's, uh, I guess, the equivalent of Superboy, uh, based on the powers he has. Right, and Gladiator is a Strontian, and the deal with Strontians is that they are as strong as they believe themselves to be. Which is a really cool gimmick, and the fight is just so much fun. We mentioned Joe Matarera draws a killer fight scene, and this is one of them. Gladiator stops Cannonball mid-blast through his indomitable strength— and Will, and Cannonball redirects Gladiator's momentum and crashes the bolt into the ground, and Gladiator wraps Cannonball up in girders, and Cannonball expands his blast field to blow the girders off, and it just keeps going, and it becomes very clear, like, Cannonball does not stand a chance. Gladiator is straight-up invincible. Until Gladiator enraged 
makes as if to punch Cannonball hard enough to send him into the sun. And Cannonball, as the dust clears, is still just standing there, untouched. So tell me, partner, was that your best shot? And Cannonball wallops Gladiator into a construction site that collapses on top of him with a big BWONG! Because check this shit, Cannonball did his homework at the Xavier School, like his sister always does, and so he knows about that whole thing where Gladiator's invincibility is based on his confidence. So if you shake Gladiator's confidence, you have a chance. And Cannonball figured out how to redirect Gladiator's death blow into Cannonball's blast field, and then used that built-up energy, Sebastian Shaw or Bishop style, like freaking nuclear brass knuckles. The rest of the X-Men show up as this fight is wrapping up, and Gladiator emerges and tells them, no, no, he's just there to talk. God damn it, Gary! And yes, his name is Gary. Gary the Gladiator. Deal with it. His name is absolutely not Gary, it is Kalark. Well, you've never met him, how do you know? I read comic books. Fair point. How do you- how do we know anything, Miles? That's a really big question. I don't think we have room in this episode for it. Again, we read comic books. Oh, yeah. Easier answer than I thought. Good point. So, here's the thing. If there's a big, like, chaotic space doomsday thing going on, you'd think the Imperial Guard would take care of it. But here, they can't. They are on Earth themselves with their own mission. A mission that will be chronicled in a three-issue Imperial Guard miniseries, which... I looked at it, and I don't think we actually need to cover it. Like, it seems fine, but it's not really X-Men related at all. It's, like, got Rick Jones as a main character, and there's a bunch of Kree stuff, and so... (laughs) Rick Jones. Hey, he's everywhere. He was great in the recent Immortal Hulk run, but really everything was great in the recent Immortal Hulk run. True. So, as soon as the X-Men agree, he immediately teleports them all away. Uh, Except for Sam, whom Gladiator says is too young. Is Cannonball even much younger than Rogue? I mean, we were just talking about that. Cannonball was one of the older New Mutants, and she was one of the younger X-Men. Maybe it's a really strict age cutoff. Like, you have to be 18, and if you're 17 and three quarters, that doesn't count. Okay, gotcha, that could be. But wait a minute, Gladiator sends Trish Tilby. I mean, yes, she's clearly an adult, but she is a completely normal human with no superpowers whatsoever. Like, Cannonball would be way better able to survive basically anything than her. But he wasn't tall enough to ride the ride. You know, Gary the Gladiator does seem like somebody who'd be a real stickler for that sort of thing. That brings us to Uncanny X-Men number 342. Did I miss something? This is written by Scott Lobdell, penciled by Joe Madrera, inked by Tim Townsend, colored by Steve Buccolato and Team Buse, and lettered by Richard Starkings and Comicraft. So the team, along with Trish, has been teleported to a Royal Star Cruiser of the Shi'ar Empire, which is running absolutely out of control. And it opens totally in medias res, hence the title being Did I Miss Something? Like, there's so much chaos Beast is talking, constantly being all technical. Rogue steps up leadership-wise, as she will at many times in the future, like in Extreme X-Men and X-Men Legacy. But, like, they're just being thrown around the ship, and life support is failing, and everything's on the fritz, and they're having to, like, hang on for dear life just to even get to the control panel. It's so cool. So Beast manages to get life support running properly, but that fucks up navigation and sends them into an asteroid belt, and Joseph has to use his magnetic powers to get them through that, although it's a massive strain, but the X-Men took him in and he's determined to see them safely through. 
And once the immediate chaos passes, as we get a chance to see everybody use their powers and have their personality traits come out, that whole thing where every comic may be somebody's first, I think this arc does it really, really well with basically every issue. Yeah, there's a lot of describing what they're doing and how their powers work, but I, I, can, I, can, I can handle that. I can buy it. It's cheesy in a, in a very fun way. I mean, I, Miles Stokes of the podcast Jan Miles Explain the X-Men, think that's a great idea, but that may just be because I tend to be overly optimistic and at times naive. Despite the fact that in our dynamic I tend to play the cynic, I, Jay, really do love the, the fun stuff in the fights in the comics, and so I'll concur. Excellent. I'm glad we got that out of the way and clarified. So everybody gets new outfits. They're in space, they had better dress the part, and we had better talk about every single one of those costumes. Who should we start with, Jay? Uh, let's start with Trish. I believe hers is the first one we see. Hers a, a navigator's outfit, was it? Yeah, it's this red, white, and yellow jumpsuit, but, like, with an open midriff and a big triangular boob window, like she's Iron Man with his old silver armor. She looks kind of like a race car driver, or maybe a space car driver. Actually, she looks kind of like Elsa Walker from the first draft of Resident Evil 2 before Claire Redfield became the female lead, but, uh, really only a few people will know what the hell I'm talking about there. I certainly don't. Eh, well, you can Google it if you feel like it, but it is a hell of a look— and a weird one for Trish. I mean, I don't know. When we've seen Trish portrayed before, I'm not going to say she was shown as especially dowdy or conservative, but she dressed like, you know, a standard professional woman in the 90s. And this is uh, this is quite the shift. What's wild is she's talking about how, well, if she's going to be an interstellar war journalist, she should dress the part. And it's like, no, if you're going to be an interstellar war journalist, you should wear something that covers your vital organs. Yeah, it's, this is a navigator outfit. They don't need their vital organs covered, because, you know, navigation. Well, I, I assume the navigator navigates with their boobs. Oh, you know, that makes sense. That's why it needs the window. And we know that the Shi'ar, despite being an avian race, the female members of them do have breasts, so this have to be for something, right? Well, it, could be, it could be a gender-neutral boob window. Oh, that's true. That's a good point. I should not assume. I like Bishop's costume a lot. It's like this blue and orange bodysuit with lots of white armor bits that have Kirby crackle coming out of these little ports in them. I don't know what the hell it's supposed to be, but he looks just he looks just brimming with power at all times, and it really complements his hulking, gigantic form the way Joe Matarera draws him. Rogue has a full-body mining outfit, and this is something that allows her to generate a very, very tight force field that almost lets her touch people. Um, it's, it's purple, it's sort of, it's a, a full, full body kind of unitard with, with yellow padded sides and gray mechanical bits. So I've seen this colored this way, and I've seen it colored pink and yellow. And I always hated the pink and yellow on Rogue. I figured she should just go back to the green and white or green and black. But the purple and yellow, I don't know, I... I, I kind of dig it, actually. She'll actually keep this costume for a while, even back on Earth, kind of like Raphael did in the Ninja Turtles comic by Archie Comics, when he got that all-black costume in the intergalactic wrestling arena arc, and then he came back and he was still wearing it. I loved that comic when I was a kid so much. Or Spider-Man in Secret War. I mean, okay, I guess that's a little more prominent than the intergalactic wrestling arc of the second Ninja Turtles comic to come out, but meh. I just heard, you know, got the all-black costume and kept wearing it when he came to Earth, and, and the parallels seemed seemed kind of obvious to me. In retrospect, the Raphael thing was almost certainly a reference, but I hadn't read Secret Wars at that point, so I did not catch it. Gambit's got a dark blue suit with white armor over it, and honestly, like, people have tried giving Gambit other costumes a lot over the years, and 
what it comes down to is that his original look is just un unbeatable. It's really, really hard to top, unlike Gambit himself. <laughs> yeah. The only other Gambit look I've seen that I like as much as his most well-known costume is I think the one he wears in uh, Knights of X and in later Excalibur and the, the recently ended run of Excalibur, where it's basically just his normal costume, but a more medieval-looking version of it. That looks pretty cool. Gotta have the coat, though. It's not Gambit without the coat. You need some kind of coat, yeah. Beast is in a yellow and white jumpsuit. There's no armor on his, unlike almost everybody else, which I dig that. It really emphasizes the whole man of science thing he's been doing. Like, he looks more like a Star Trek character, almost. Yeah, that that, and the fact that even in action, he's primarily an acrobat. Yeah, yeah, as muscular as he is, his agility is the thing that most defines him, I think. I agree. Physically, anyway. Joseph actually manages to find a space Magneto costume. Yeah, it's this fuchsia purple and red dealie with, like, it even has the rivets around the neckline. It's seriously so close to Magneto's costume. You'd think for a dude that really wants to make it clear he's not Magneto, he wouldn't somehow seek out the one outfit in all of space that looked like Magneto's suit. Look, Magneto is a snappy dresser. I mean, that is a very good point, actually. So, once so attired, they all pair off to have some character development, most of which feels kind of redundant. So Trish reassures Hank that there's nowhere she'd rather be than in space and in imminent peril with him. So this is interesting, because Trish and Beast have known each other for a long time, but I was going back through old issues, and they've really spent almost as much time arguing as being all affectionate with each other. And recently, that was certainly the case. I mean... He got really mad and was kind of a dick to her when she revealed that the legacy virus was affecting humans as well as mutants. He apologized, but I don't know. It's, it's a bit of a it's a bit of a quick move. It's also interesting to me that their dynamic is just so like old lovers uh, bantery. That's really not what we've seen here. Trisha seemed to be much more serious most of the time, and here she's always calling him blue. And I looked it up, and I don't think she used to call him that. I mean, hell, the first time he got all blue and furry, she got kind of freaked out. Yeah, it feels like the character is almost more Beast's girlfriend TM as played by Trish Tilby than Trish Tilby. Yeah, and that's a shame, because Trish is a character I always wanted to get more focal time. Like, she's there in the background a lot, but the idea of having her front and center in an adventure is cool— I agree, though. She doesn't really feel like herself. That said, she will be sticking around with this incarnation of the team for quite a few more issues, so I'm optimistic once they get out of space we'll uh, see more interesting sides of her. Rogue gives Bishop a pep talk as he once again questions his direction in life. As she tells him, I found out, the hard way, that there are some things a body can't change. All you can do is change the way you feel about it. And if you feel nothing? Then you're just not feeling hard enough. There's what I think may be supposed to be a callback to this scene later when uh, Gambit tells Joseph to stop feeling so much, but I'm genuinely not sure, because it doesn't—it it feels like it should be a thematic bookend, but it doesn't really feel like it's written as, as that. Yeah, I don't know, but I will say this scene by itself, I really dig. This is a great arc for Rogue, I think. I mean, despite being one of the younger X-Men, despite being one of the X-Men that started as a villain, she starts taking up more and more of a leadership position as we go— 
And we also see that all the characters start seeing her as more and more of a leader. And that doesn't just include her making, like, combat decisions. She's really emotionally there for her team. I like this as a turning point for Rogue. And this is really going to pay off years later in uh, the X-Men Legacy run by, I think, Mike Carey and later Christos Gage. Like, her evolution in that direction is, I'm not going to say starting here, but it takes a big step here. So with their new outfits and their new personal development, the X-Men arrive at the Shi'ar's busiest docking station, Star Station Asura Terrell, to find that it is smashed apart in space, entirely devoid of life. And it looks so cool! These background full of nebulas, with a planet nearby and a sky full of stars and debris. Like, Joe Matarera is known for his figures, but he draws a mean space scene. There's a bit once they get inside the station that I love, where Joseph comments that the walls are made of a strange metal he can't move, and Gambit's like, no, they're not metal, they're probably a polymer or something. And now I keep wondering if Joseph actually understands that there are substances that aren't metal, or just gets really confused when he can't move, like, trees or something? Okay, look, Jay, in the recent Magneto miniseries, Joseph spent a long time looking at old videos of Silver Age Magneto, so he's probably seen a lot of truly ridiculous magnetic nonsense. I mean, he has no way of knowing that magnets can't do literally anything. But he's has he already done that by this point? I think so. Okay, okay, fair enough. Now, it turns out that they are mistaken. There, it, Not everyone in the station is dead. There is, in fact, one person still alive. It is Deathbird, critically injured. Yikes. And that brings us to Uncanny X-Men 343, where no X-Man has gone before, which I'm pretty sure was the name of the Shi'ar space level in the old X-Men Sega Genesis game, but I could be misremembering. Seems likely. This issue is written by Scott Lobdell, penciled by Joe Matarera, inked by Tim Townsend, colored by Steve Bucciolato and Team Buse, and lettered by Richard Starkings and Comicraft, and opens, as it would absolutely have to, with Beast narrating. Doctor's Log. Stardate. Er, today. This just makes me think fondly upon those X-Men Star Trek crossovers we covered with Tina Carlton that one time. Those sure were a thing. Three things, in fact. So the X-Men have been in space for a week. Once again, we have a jump at the beginning of the issue. That's one thing I like about this story, is that we really do have a good sense of the passage of time. But Deathbird has been in a coma for days, and 4,000 Shi'ar are dead in the attack that the X-Men were too late to stop, that maybe if they hadn't re-enabled life support on their ship, they would have been able to get to in time. Wah, wah. When Deathbird finally does wake up, she asks about her people, and she's grateful to Bishop when he's just blunt about all of them being dead. He, of course, is suspicious about her being the only survivor, hence the red handprint she gives him on the side of his face moments later. And this, right here, listeners, is the start of a beautiful, often very hostile friendship. Bishop may in fact be right to be suspicious, because not only is it Deathbird, but she almost immediately grabs his guns and shoots Gambit and Joseph when they come into the room. Except, that's not Gambit and Joseph. Those are two phalanx entities. Whoa, what? Okay, so, the phalanx. Let's talk a little bit about what their deal is and why they're so good at disguise and evil. So the phalanx are an offshoot of the same race that Warlock is part of, the Technarchy. Exactly. They themselves are more of a Borg-like collective rather than the father-son pairings the Technarchy tends to be uh, created within. It's actually a lot more complicated than that. We find out in Powers of Ten many, many years later that there are a whole classification and category of intergalactic intelligence. 
whatever. The point is, in the Phalanx Covenant, when the X-Men fought some of the Phalanx, those Phalanx were trying to summon the greater group of Phalanx out in space. They were unable to do so, but that greater group of Phalanx was still out there, and apparently they're the ones that have almost demolished the Shi'ar Empire here. So this is weird to me. I would expect that if the Phalanx had had come through here, we would see more that had been techno-organically transformed, not just, you know, absolute desolation. Yeah, that's true, because the Phalanx's thing, certainly they want to conquer, but their main goal seems to be to integrate all other forms of life into themselves, thus improving and strengthening their own species. Yeah, exactly. And here we just we just see corpses and empty space. Now, also, we see two phalanx who are easily taken out with a blaster, which surprised the hell out of me. I mean, Bishop's guns are very large, to be fair. Aren't they also, like, specially designed so that only he can use them so he can cha- because he channels energy through them? Uh, depends on the writer and whether that writer even remembers. Uh, right now, I guess not, because Deathbird sure did. But we do see some of the phalanx here that are not shape-shifting at the time— that have captured the real Gambit and Joseph. And these look very, very different than the ones we've seen before. We're used to seeing the phalanx being yellow and black, made of almost fluid circuitry, kind of like Douglock is in this era of X-Men. But these ones are smooth, dark gray, hulking humanoids, with these red vents or maybe gills on their bodies, and these many stacked blue eye slits, like the freaking Lilith from Evangelion. We'll actually later learn in the Annihilation Conquest story, where the phalanx are some of the big villains, that these, quote, true or pure phalanx uh, are indeed different. They're less raggedy than the ones we saw in Phalanx Covenant because they've integrated matter and genetics from so many organic races. In the future of Powers of Ten, when we see them, they're somewhere in the middle of those two designs. But I kind of like this as a concept. I like the idea that the phalanx that the X-Men fought in Phalanx Covenant were just sort of these proto-Phalanx, almost. Like they'd only begun to touch their true potential. I like that idea, and I wish that it's one that had been played up more in this arc. One of the things that kind of frustrated me is we have these these more advanced Phalanx, but there's really no functional difference between the kind of threat they appear to be. In fact, these are less effectively threatening than the Phalanx Covenant Phalanx were. Yeah, because, like, there's a taunting voice from the shadows, there's a form that slams literally through a phalanx's body too fast to see, there's a hand that rips a phalanx apart from a crater in the ground, and it's it's rogue. She's basically, you know, being southern Batman, like, I don't know, the phalanx are a cowardly and superstitious lot. Um, so, th- so she's eventually captured by the phalanx, and they start to transmute her, and with her last human breath, she says she always loved Bit- Gambit, which is, of course, his cue to then rescue her, having escaped as she was scrapping with the phalanx. And after some banter with a scrabam, Gambit blows up the phalanx, causing them to withdraw from Rogue's form, and saves her. And the X-Men come up with a plan. This plan, well, it's it's part of a plan. It's not a whole plan, but it's at least their plan to get away in, through the phalanx. Um, they're all going to strap into an escape pod, leave their spaceship as a big target, and when the phalanx blow it up, um, surf the debris field to the planet or to the moon below them. Deathbird hates being cowardly, um, which is to say subtle, so she and Bishop, of course, bicker, which is to say flirt. And um, Joseph is able to magnetically guide the, the pod planet side, where they find a teleporter in an old mining base that used to be one of Deathbird's safe houses. 
and they teleport into danger and into the last issue. Not not into danger. Danger is still on Earth. Lowercase danger. So that brings us finally to Uncanny X-Men number 344, Casualties of War, written by Scott Lobdell, penciled by Melvin Ruby, inked by Joe Weems, Scott Hanna, Marlo Alquiza, Harry Candelario, and Tim Townsend, colored by Steve Bucolato and Team Buse, and lettered by Richard Starkings and Comicraft. And oh, this cover. I always like covers that have dialogue where the characters are talking to each other about what's going on. I love them even more when there are trademark icons and stuff. Rogue starts on the cover. It's no use. There are too many phalanx. Trademark. And Beast replies, Keep fighting, Rogue. Registered trademark. The X-Men are the last hope for the Shi'ar. Trademark. The art here is still pretty good, if a jarring departure from Joe Madreira. Um, The narration also shifts to Gambit, which is an interesting move. And I, I gotta say, although I just complimented the art, I am not very fond of the way the issue opens, which is of a sexy, sexy peril of Lalandra. Yeah, she's all restrained and uh, kind of crammed into a position with her breasts and butt very prominent and her outfit ripped so that it's just barely covering her bits. Like, uh, I don't know. That's, uh, that's something. It's, it's, it's the, the sexy, sexy peril trademark pose. Yup. That said, Melvin Ruby is overall pretty good at putting badass female characters front and center. Uh, Deathbird especially. Like, yes, she has lots of bird cleavage, but she's super hardcore looking. I mean, her awesome bladed face frame and her random metal cables on her armored costume really help, but she looks dangerous and intimidating, and Ruby does a great job with that. Ah, yes, the bird breasts with which she lactates bird milk to feed her bird young. Hey, you know how hard it is to milk a bird? I mean, show some respect for all the bird farmers out there. Really about as hard as it is to milk a stegosaurus. What? Wait, you told me about this. You should tell the listeners about this. Alright, um, brief but substantial tangent. So, I I just got back from a road trip, and one of the places that we we stopped that we were not aware of before this drive, um, is a place called Dinosaur Kingdom 2, which is off I-81 in Virginia, and which I heartily recommend to anyone who is is on that drive, because, boy, you are not going to get a better ratio of, like, money spent to deep weirdness anywhere. And I say this as a, as a connoisseur of roadside attractions. So, um, the rough premise of this place is that there were dinosaurs around during the Civil War, and the, the Union Army tried to, to, you know, I don't know, tried to... Not not exactly recruit them, but try try to get the dinosaurs to do stuff for them. And the dinosaurs, you know, limited success because dinosaurs don't really like authority. And also there were slime monsters that were fighting for the Confederacy, except the park is kind of vaguely pro-Confederate, but the slime monsters sort of mix that up. But um, there are the, the bulk of the park is is made up of these sort of scenes, this fiberglass sculpted scenes in, on a path through the woods and um, one of them is someone milking a stegosaurus, which sort of t- sets the tone for the entire thing. Yeah, Jay, you sent me a bunch of pictures from this place, and that one I just stared at for like a full 30 seconds before I was able to even like bring up the focus to click to the next one. Yeah, you can't see it in the photo, but that, t- that stegosaurus definitely had udders. I mean, I wasn't around in dinosaur times. I don't know if they had udders or not. Maybe they did. Yeah, it makes a, my my point here to to bring this back full circle is that that makes about as much sense as 
boobs on a Shi'ar. Hmm. Good, good point. I guess the Shi'ar probably didn't team up with any Civil War soldiers. God, I hope no one ever writes that story. Oh, someone already has, just by virtue of us thinking about it. God damn it. Anyway. Anyway, Lalandra has been holding out somehow against the phalanx by sheer force of will, and Deathbird thinks that Lalandra is protecting the royal yet born, the next generation of Shi'ar. So, Bishop and a surprisingly grateful Deathbird split off to save the eggs or kids or whatever they are, and everyone else goes off to take on the phalanx, and that's when we learn where Shi'ar babies come from. Oh boy, this whole thing. Okay. Well, we learn we learn one place Shi'ar babies come from because we're we're going to we're going to expand on this shortly. Um but they are incubated in a massive nest, uh, what the comic describes as a collective womb. And this raises interesting questions about Shi'ar childhood and family structure and also the fact that Deathbird later gets old school pregnant. But it also raises the question of where the eggs come from, which is never resolved. Like, does Lalandra lay all of them, like, bee-style? Or do the Shi'ar <laughs> have a third sex that functions like a bee queen? Or maybe are all the Shi'ar that we've seen before technically the same sex, despite the appearances of human sexual dimorphism, and there's just a second sex that's like that, that lays the eggs? I, I want to dig deeper here than continuity will allow for. Yeah, well, and like you said, we certainly have some contradictions as well, and we also have examples of kind of genetically engineered, rapidly aged test tube people. I mean, there are different variations of that with both Gabriel Summers, Vulcan, and with Adam X, the Xtreme. It's a whole thing. I mean, if I had to guess, I would say that Shi'ar are capable of a sort of mammalian type of birth. We actually talked about this in a listener question in episode 321. We do know that the Shi'ar can interbreed with more mammalian species, so that would make sense. But maybe, like, their culture is so warlike and so regimented that that's considered, you know, kind of primitive, and the proper way to do it is through this big collective womb full of slimy egg sacks just like earthbirds just like earthbirds anyway bishop and deathbird flirt by making grand statements about their ideals as one does and i i like that deathbird is less surprised that bishop comes from the future than she is that earth isn't part of the shiar imperium by then Oh, it's great. They are so much fun together. I really love later when they're fighting their interaction and deathbird says you seem to be running low on the power you store within your body. Indeed, but don't concern yourself. If need be, I'll take them apart with my bare hands. You realize there is no shame if you leave right now, human. This isn't your fight. That doesn't even warrant a reply, Deathbird. You are a warrior, aren't you? I find that... impressive. And then Wolverine drinks prune juice to impress Worf, I assume. Meanwhile, Joseph takes over the narration and has Holocaust flashbacks, but um, the, the one Magneto was in, not Apocalypse's shitty kid. And Gambit talks him briefly back to reality, but Joseph remains bent on revenge against anyone who commits genocide. Which is a problem, because they're supposed to be keeping a low profile, scanning for the magical frequency that'll separate the techno from the organic, but Joseph is just too dramatic to wait. We are much more than human, phalanx. We are homo superior. We will stand against you where other, lesser races have fallen. Everyone manages to fight the phalanx in time for Hank to pull off this plan, but Chandelar is in ashes. 
so it's interesting that when the phalanx are separated from their organic and tech components, which does indeed defeat like all of them at once, the tech that's left is just that yellow circuitry. So yeah, like we were saying before, their pure form, that gray smooth form, really is just a mix of everything they've conquered. And when that's removed, like all that's left is the phalanx that we've seen, the phalanx who have not absorbed any species other than themselves. But let's talk a little about how well this works, because the way this is supposed to be, I mean, this incredibly dangerous, overwhelming galactic force of robot people has demolished the biggest empire that the galaxy has ever known. And the X-Men have just barely managed to stop them and save what scraps remain. And I don't know, does, does it feel like something that big? Nope, you never really get a sense of the scale with this, in the same way that you never really get a sense of, of these pure phalanx as a greater threat. It's unfortunate, because I really like the first three chapters of this story. Like, it's a fun story, and those time jumps really sell the scale, every character has their own little psychological journeys, we see some new dynamics, we see characters using their powers in new ways. And hovering over this all are these enormous stakes, you know, that the Imperial Guard is desperate for the X-Men to do what they're not able to, to save this entire civilization. And then the entire civilization is like two rooms, and it wraps up in a couple pages. I have a question. Mm -hmm. Did this feel like a brood story dressed as a phalanx story? Oh, that's a good question, yeah, because certainly the brood can disguise themselves as their victims as well. They are a parasitic race that causes horrible destruction and integrates things. There's that sense of horror, that sense of the heroes being in space in the middle of the unknown. I hadn't thought about it that way, but yeah, now I almost wish it was the brood instead of the phalanx. Yeah, when they were first exploring the derelict space station, I was convinced it was going to be a brood story. Yeah, I mean, part of that may be the association with, you know, the alien movies. Like, if you're on a derelict space station and things are creepy and everybody's dead, probably there's a xenomorph involved. But, yeah, that really fits the brood's genre more than it does that of the phalanx. That said, this is only the second real phalanx story we've seen, only the second big phalanx arc. So, I don't know that we really know what a phalanx story is supposed to be like at this point. There's no default. I wish it had been something more distinctive. Agreed, yeah. That whole integration, that whole, like, taking on the strengths of your victims and taking over their forms and identities, like, you could do a lot with that. You could do a lot with paranoia and despair there, and uh, the arc unfortunately doesn't. All the other elements are great, but that right there is a miss. And with that, you've got questions. An anonymous listener asks on Tumblr, Though I'm not sure if the former is canonically a mutant or not right now, what do you think would be the outcome of an X of Swords combat between the unbeatable Squirrel Girl and Iska the Unbeaten? Ah, uh, to start briefly with your implied question, Squirrel Girl is currently not a mutant. Her comic was very, very specific about that at one point. But here's the thing. So neither character is really as straightforward as they sound. I mean, Squirrel Girl is unbeatable— in part because she so often finds ways around a straight-up conflict. Like, she's good in a fight, sure, but that's usually not how the big conflicts resolve. A lot of the time, she befriends her opponents, and then helps redirect them into more productive or at least less destructive directions. There was that time that she pointed Galactus at a planet full of delicious nuts, not not that kind, so he didn't eat Earth, and then they became buds, or how Craven became one of Squirrel Girl's very best friends, and they drove around in his Cravan. Like, that's sort of her deal. As for Iska the Unbeaten, she also seems straightforward at first, like her power is just that she always wins. That's her mutant power. 
which is a great concept. But we also saw in a recent X-Men Red issue, thanks to a very clever Roberto da Costa, that there are some loopholes that allow for less straightforward outcomes. So, I don't know, I feel like if Squirrel Girl befriended Iska without actually defeating her or stopping her goals, that would count as a win for Iska, and would also count as a win for Squirrel Girl, and god, now I want like a buddy miniseries between the two of them, that would be delightful! I guess specifically in Ten of Swords, though, that would count as a tie for the purposes of the big Otherworld tournament. An anonymous listener asks on Tumblr, If y'all got offered any voice role on the new X-Men animated series, what would be your choices? Warlock. Definitely Warlock. I, I miss doing the Warlock voice on the show. Yeah, Warlock hasn't been around in ages, and Doug Locke is very specifically a totally different character. That said, we are going to have a Warlock miniseries in the not-too-distant future. Hey. Yeah. What about you? Uh, it's Mojo. It's Mojo all the way. Like, even when he's speaking quietly, it still counts as yelling. And his mercurial moods mean that there's a ton of range, even within one sentence. Like, Spiral! Those parasites at Disney are bringing the X-Meats back on the air, and I want a cut! Those mutants are my media property! Bring me their eyes! Bring me their spines! Bring me something just barely past topical, like a Popeye's crispy chicken sandwich! Who gave you permission to leave? Mojo needs likes and subscribes! Bring me the eyes of likes and subscribes! He's so much fun. Somebody once told me that when I do that voice, I sound like a character from the old live-action He-Man movie, and I haven't seen that since I was a kid, so I don't know what they're talking about. I guess I should watch it again. We are a fully listener-supported podcast, and certain levels of support come with on-air acknowledgement from various fictional characters and concepts. So here is not Warlock, not Mojo, but the angry Claremontian narrator. Brian and Jerry and Skywall. Tariq. Look, I know you were excited about all the space stuff, and, you know, I was too until you ruined it. I really should know better than to get my hopes up. Every time I want to believe it can be different, and every time I'm inevitably disappointed. So yeah, thanks for nothing. And the microphone now goes to not Mojo, but Mr. Sinister. What a fascinating incubation chamber the Shi'ar have. Infants developing in eggs, but with plenty of sickening fluids all around. It's the best of both worlds. Ah, Apocalypse. You so limited me during our unfortunate alliance. All of that celestial technology, and you still kept us both on Earth. If I had had access to this beautiful Shi'ar horror show, I could have given avian traits to so many of my experiments. Levi Chancellor would have looked so much more evolved with a jaunty feathered crest and raptorial or perching feet. Although, I suppose the pile of smoking sludge that my tests turned Levi into would have ended up the same. But still... And Trav Walton would have fared much better with wings like deathbirds and the power of flight. Why, he might have actually successfully evaded the horrible mutant mollusk hybrids that escaped from my cloning vats. Ah, well, I suppose horrible mutant mollusk hybrids need to eat too. Now, who can I give a cloaca to? And with that... Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men is recorded in Forest Hills, New York, and Portland, Oregon, and is produced by Matt Hunter, who also arranged our theme music. You can find more of Matt's work at moon-talk.bandcamp.com. New episodes come out most Sundays on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, Spotify, 
and at explainthexmen.com. Check out explainthexmen.com for visual companions to every episode alongside original illustrations by David Wynn. Our show is 100% listener-supported. If you'd like to help us stay on the air and ad-free, check out the Patreon link at the top of explainthexmen.com. And please rate and review us on your favorite podcasting platform. It really helps. Next week, Hawk Talk. In two weeks, Generation X finally fights Black Tom, Mondo gets weird. And Bastion, officially, officially, kickstarts the lead-up to Operation Zero Tolerance. (laughs) 